2: I'm Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I welcome Bart Windrum to the program. Bart's a lay person who became an end of life reform advocate after his parents' sudden hospitalized demises. Bart helps civilians identify, assess, mitigate, and overcome the everyday obstacles to peaceful dying recognized and endorsed by ethicists doctors nurses policymakers spiritual leaders healthcare think tanks healthcare visionaries and activists Bart's work, body of work includes the the unadopted state initiative the option to die in peace the award-winning book notes from the waiting room managing a loved one's end of life hospitalization the TEDx talk dying in peace to die at peace New Terms of Engagement, the Never Say Die Wrap, the Journal of Participatory Medicine Articles, It's Time to Account for Medical Error in Top 10 Causes of Death Charts, Windrum's Mac- Matrix of Dying Terms, and the In-Depth Program to Die in Peace are rites of passage. Bart founded and curates the Facebook group To Die in Peace, overcoming article obstacles, currently about 650 members. Welcome, Bart.
3: Thank you, Cheryl. I'm happy to be with you today.
2: Happy to have you. And I have to say that your book, Notes from the Waiting Room, which of course I read for our time together today, inspired some gratitude in me. I've had three very close deaths in my life, my wife and my two parents. And um, I could see how the things that you're talking about, these kind of terrible dilemmas and um, extrinsic trauma could have happened in any one of them, but uh, I somehow escaped. So, um, could you talk a little about this idea of intrinsic versus extrinsic extrinsic, uh, trauma when we're dealing with the end of our loved one's life?
3: Yes, and as a prelude to that, let me say that as I was experiencing my parents' demises, which were unexpected, they were in their 80s, but they were sudden, uh, you know, they tanked very suddenly for, under very different circumstances, uh, which would require some explanation. But at, even as these things were unfolding, and we, my family was small, my two parents, my sister and I, Uh, We were in our early and mid-50s when these events happened. My sister at the time was working, and she was a newborn ICU nurse, and I'm a pretty inquisitive guy. So we were all on the same page. My parents were advanced planned. We had many dining room conversations, and none of it mattered at all. And I began asking myself as things unfolded why they were happening the way they were. You know, mm. we didn't understand what was happening. We didn't understand what wasn't happening. And as we began to get a grip on things, even as my parents were dying under these systemic circumstances, uh, I, I had a lot of self-talk. You know, I was asking myself questions. It was always, why, why, why? What accounts for this? There's disconnects here. And I began answering those questions. And I realized that the lang- that language was important. Um For myself, language was important. So all my work is based on using language, examining the words we use or the words we don't use, maybe the words we ought to be using. So this notion of intrinsic versus extrinsic shock occurred to me. Based on number one, because I experienced it, and so did my parents, and I watched people in my family experience shocks that were needless and ought not to have happened. And these terms and the distinctions occurred to me because I had to sort it out. I had to say what was what was really make some sense of it.
2: Yeah, 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 to make some sense of it for yourself.
3: Right? So here's the deal. And this plays into grief and grieving also, right? I mean, sure. death is intrinsically painful for survivors, right? Sure. We lose people that we don't want to lose when we don't want to lose them. And By we have and to reconcile that, right?
2: Yes, yes, absolutely. That,
3: that's the way of it. That's part of life. You can't extract that from human existence. It is, right? That's intrinsic. But extrinsic shock is different it's additional, and in, uh, I, I'm just going to make a blanket statement. I'm going to make a declarative statement that it is unnecessary. Maybe from time to time it is necessary. I don't know. But in terms of the system that we find ourselves in, um, I'm going to just declare that extrinsic shock is unnecessary, and further, it's harmful, and harmful is an important word in the medical world because harm is something that providers don't want to do.
1: For you know, sure, by
3: and large, unless you get a, a real bad egg, they don't <laughs> right. want to harm anybody, right? Absolutely That's not. That's not what they're there for. In fact, they, they you know this this you know the Hippocratic Oath, which is not really what it what we all the myth you know that we still associate with it. You know, it's not—it's not really that myth anymore. But it serves, right? The sentiments serve, the 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 goals serve. Um, You know, harm is not part of the part of the recipe, except it is, and it happens day in and day out. And I had to say, you know what? When I experience an extrinsically shocking event in the medical system, especially around end of life, it's harmful. That is the delivery of harm. In that moment of experience, I have received harm. Harm has been delivered to me by some person or some aspect of the system in the medical scene, right? So that that's the distinction that I make. Well,
2: and and what I get from that, as someone in mental health, uh, as opposed to medical health, is that uh, I think there's just the beginning of a conversation about um harm in in an emotional sense in medical environments
3: mm-hmm.
2: okay. uh f- for instance, when you and I were recently at a conference where we met, there was a long discussion about the right to die so called right to die act, in which it was very clear to me that um Harm was being looked at as did you continue life or not? It wasn't being looked at more broadly. Uh, what's harm to that particular person at a moment, you know? And of course, that's a very complex issue. But I think you're saying the emotional harm that occurred and physical, but emotional harm needs to matter to the medical system. Yes?
3: Yes, it does, and it needs to matter for several reasons. One of them is simply um, ethics, right? You're not medicine; ought not be in the business of harming the patient family. Plain and simple. But it does day in and day out, and I have to tell your listeners that my parents' terminal hospitalizations were each around two and a half weeks. Three weeks was found to be the average in the U.S. by Sharon Kaufman, the medical anthropologist out of San Francisco. And so we were pretty much in the ballpark, average Americans. Right. Um, and and um, it was not isolated. These instances of harm were not isolated. Uh, they were day in and day out, large and small, unremitting in their delivery over the two, the entirety of both hospitalizations in neighboring but different towns, 15 months apart, on totally different medical trajectories. So I didn't just, you know, pop this, you know, some of these distinctions out because they were one-offs, far from it. You know, they were the norm. The other aspect is that the harm is, is functional because if you harm the proxy, I mean, let's think about advanced directives. Right now, the current state of guidance for medicine as it has been for about a decade and really hasn't budged much from my, my assessment, is that medicine broadly tells us all, exhorts us all to fill out a couple of advanced directives and doesn't and fails to address even the fact that there are actually eight to 12 that we should be considering. They basically just talk about two. And, and so they, they exhort us, medicine exhorts us to fill out a couple of directives, have a lot of conversations, assign one or more uh, proxies, and to bring all of that in tow when when we basically are, are, you know, bursting through the double doors of some medical facility on a gurney in a crisis, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and then what happens when we get there? Now, a lot of good stuff is intended to happen there. And I should also say that medicine saved my dad's life 19 years before his death. It saved his life twice with two double bypasses, which was at least one too many. But I wasn't able to have that talk with my dad when I was in my early 40s. But, you know, so I don't paint medicine with a black brush. You know, we valued those 19 years that, you know, our Absolutely. family was whole. Okay? But I had to debug what happened to us because I said, you know what? Who's next? Me, my wife, my sister, and then my daughter, my sole kid is going to have to survive whatever happens to her, one or both of her parents. I said, I'm done donating dying humans to a failed medical system at the end of life and so my allegiance is primarily to my fellow civilians and interestingly as i don't know if you know the whole story or not but at the conference um i um a pal- one of the palliative docs who was uh, attending on the second day told me she changed the way she practiced that morning as a result of experiencing my matrix session the day before it was really profound and uh, it was so great um to to have a direct effect on a doctor and and help her Probably change the trajectory. Uh, Absolutely, practice. and I mean, and we we'll will okay. go.
2: Wait, 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 we will go wait, wait, into that. Go ahead. Yeah.
3: Okay. Yeah. So to answer, I, I think I'm. I, I think I'm in route to answering the question. Mm-hmm. Um, the the problem was so medicine tells us to do all this, and then we show up, and what do they do? They cut the proxy off at the knees through through the l- delivering extrinsic shock. And let me let's let's make this concrete. Let's take it out of the realm of the abstract here. Sure. So, so when my mom was admitted, she had sudden respiratory collapse. She was in a facility, um, for some intermittent arrhythmia. They, she was waiting to go in and, and, and be, examed, be examined, be uh, examined, cause they didn't know what it was. And she by and large didn't have heart problems. It turns out she had lung problems. We didn't know. Oh, wow. And she just had respiratory collapse. And lickety split, she was intubated and she was in the ICU. And, dad was 83 at the time they'd been married 60 years everyone thought that he would predecease her because of his comorbidities i mentioned several of them and there we all are and and i mean she's in a bad way we knew we saw the stats my sister's a nurse we we knew what was going on but you know we embarked upon a course of treatment to try to bring her blood oxygen up Mm -hmm. um well somewhere along the line about a week in It is casually mentioned at the bedside. So there's mom, comatose, intubated. There's me, dad, with his hearing aids. And by that time, we already figured out how screwy it was because none of the docs would actually talk to him, even though he was lucid. He was the proxy. I was not. And he could hear, but you had to be a little attentive to him. You had to be close, but he was not debilitated. But these docs wouldn't really talk to him. You know, too, they're too much in a hurry. You know, they're talking to me. So I wised up after a couple of days, and I, I positioned myself right behind him. So when they talked to me, I hoped they were actually talking to his ear, right? Uh, yes. Well, one of them says, that, in fact, the admitting, the cardiologist let loose that mom was full code. And, and we all about fell down because... She had a DNR. We, thought, we th- thought that it was in the system. We didn't know. Well, why, why did it take a week? So there she is intubated. And so you can imagine the specter of all of a sudden realizing, Dad realizes that his wife is full code. That means at any moment they could jump her bones and crack her ribs. Mm. So I watched as he took this information in. And Cheryl, I'm telling you, I've never seen this before. He was a World War II guy, uh, you know, about 5'4", 220 pounds, burly man, and he recoiled literally as if he had been speared. Mm, And that was the delivery of harm. And that's what informs some of what I've written and say about this. I watched him be shocked, and I watched the harm. And then what did we have to do to fix it? We had to leave the facility. So now you have an 83-year-old guy who has to be home for 2 5 hour sessions every day because he's on diuretics to manage his heart meds which means with his walker and his scooter he's got to be near his bathroom so he doesn't pee his pants and we and his their town home is 30 or 40 minutes from the facility that they were in and we have to leave and navigate this labyrinthine hospital and get back and get the directive and go back and then they take it and it's not even, of course we didn't know at the time, but I know now just because you hand it to somebody is meaningless. The doc has to show up and sign it as a medical order and then you have to wait for a nurse at the station to chart it and get it in the binder. And only then is it in effect. So you have all this delay, and it took, it took completely removing the proxy from the scene of the business of proxying to fix this. Hmm. You know, so that's what and, I mean. And,
2: and as I was reading, I was also uh, really aware of the complication of it. And I'll give you an example. Um, two or three years before my mom died, she had a catastrophic uh, uh, ulcerative hemorrhage. Is a kind of quick way to put it. Go to the ER. Um, they say, "Do you have a DNR?" Uh, she says, "I don't know." Well, you know, it, she, it was so confused. So I said, "So, Mom, because uh, I'm thinking this is a discrete event, right?" Do they? Do you want them to? Do you want them to see you through this? And she says yes. Okay, so they did, and it was it was heroism. Talk about that. People were coming to her room, um, you know, saying, "I can't believe you lived through that." However, she did uh, two, three very good years. So as I was reading your book, as I was reading Katie Butler's book, uh, "Knocking on Heaven's Door," I'm thinking. Wow, it's really hard to make these calls, because had she died in that process, uh, I would have such a different outlook on that. Uh, And so, and I'm thinking about medical people who lived through my mother living through that, and, you know, they're at the ready, kind of. And, And so how we make those decisions is very complex, isn't it?
3: Well, it is, but you know what? I submit that we need help, right?
2: Yes, And yes.
3: when I parse this, and I should say, and if you've read my book, or at least perused it. You've no, no, I've come, read it. Okay, so you know that I don't let myself off the hook either. I list my failures, right? I'm part of the system. Sure. And, and I screwed up big time several times. Of course, we all do the best we can with what we have when we're That's doing it, right. right? That's so right. So I try not to beat myself up too much. But every now and then the hammer comes back around, you know, <laughs> even though it's been 11 years and, 12 and 10 years. But anyway, um, sometimes I lose my train of thought, and I hope this isn't going to be one of them. Um it is. What was the last thing you said? Because there's a reason I... Well, I was I, saying um, they're,
2: they're very hard calls to oh, make. Oh, yes. And you said we need help. Hey, uh, and I absolutely okay. agree.
3: Uh, Here's the I, deal. I was, I was... I had to ask myself, okay, if I'm going to pin the tail on the donkey, it's got to be the right donkey. Right? I can't write a book. I can't become an end-of-life reform advocate pointing fingers at the wrong people. You know, first of all, it would be unethical, and second of all, it's not who I am, and I, I don't want to do that. That's not the point, right? So I really, I really try not to point fingers. Although sometimes it may sound that way because I'm, I'm not real soft when I when I speak about all these things. I'm more matter of fact because the stakes are so high. And I well, think and we also, need a lot of great talk.
2: Sure, when you've when you've been, as you say, extrinsically impacted. It's, it's hard to be calm about it. It's hard to be matter of fact about it. I, you know, there's some yeah. grip in us about it. It's time yep, for our first is. break. And I want to come back to that when we, when we return this okay. idea of how we get informed, uh, in these situations of high emotionality, uh, well enough how we get Uh, that information uh, and what stands in the way. And listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. So please go ahead and and, uh, connect with me in any way that's best for you. And to find Bart Windrum, you can go to his website, axiomaction.com. A-X-I-O-M-A-C-T-I-O-N dot com. Be back soon.
0: your life your health your network you're listening to voice america health and wellness
3: relationship issues anxious parenting challenges no more learn how to live your best life health and wellness channel ouch what do you think of when you think of dental procedures well when you think about it the teeth and the rest of the body are strongly connected what happens in one part affects the other in the Tooth Body Connection with host Dr. Don Ewing, we'll explain more about these concepts as well as discuss the role that your teeth play in your overall health. You'll learn about amalgams and how removing them the wrong way can be toxic to your body. Tune in Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m.
1: Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness.
3: We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
0: Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness.
1: You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones.
2: Welcome back. I am your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Bart Windrum, an end of life activist whose book, Notes from the Waiting Room, describes the difficulties in both, both of his parents' hospitalized emergent deaths and how we can be better informed about our advocacy for our loved one and this whole, uh, hospital process and death process. Um, you know, during the break, Bart, I was telling you that the three, um, Deaths in which i 've been very intimately involved, my wife, my father, and my mother uh, were very clear uh, as they as ne- as death approached, we knew it you know they they fit in different places on your matrix, but they they all were clear, and um, so there wasn 't the kind of tortuous decision making without full information that you described. And, um, I, I, so I want to talk about how we know and, and how we get enough information because there are so many times in the book where I felt as if you couldn't have known you didn't have the information that, that it was, that it, it was that, um, that, that the medical yeah. people would have had to realize they don't get what's going on in some way. And they, and they would have had to, had to step beyond, uh, what I've heard many people who in the medical profession describe, where, um, they're not sure people want the information uh-huh. in a given, uh-huh. you know, uh, which yeah. I have encountered, uh, where they're not sure whether they're allowed to step over that line and, and be, f- be straightforward.
3: You know, I have. Let me just have a quick, li- a quick little thought about that. And sometimes I have thoughts that sound heretical, and I can't help it. They're the thoughts that I have, and this is not a new one for me. It's ironic, and and my heart goes out to providers. Um, we live in a multicultural society. They don't know who they're gonna, who's going to come across their path next. Um, and even within socio groups and economic groups, there'll be differences. And we're all death deniers anyway. And you know. Bloody bloody blah It's blah It's a rough road, and then they have all the, the administrative hassles and the craziness of the wacko insurance world, and on and on and on and on and on. And on. That said, um, and to tie into where we were before, to pin the tail on the donkey, I finally had to say that medicine is 50.1% responsible, and I'm 49.9% responsible. And I did that rather than make it equal because it is unequal. I saw death once. When my mom died. And twice mm. when my dad died. And that's it. That's my experience of death. And that's my experience of dying. But medicine has seen thousands of deaths. Any, any particular provider in a hospital, they've seen hundreds of deaths at least. They know better than I do. They know better than all of us do. And therefore, I think to tie it into the question you just posed, they simply have to ask if they can, if they can, uh, if we want to hear stuff or not. Um, and the irony, the irony is you have these highly trained, very smart, extremely capable people who wimp out, and in so doing, they actually abandon us. And I know that is a very charged term, but this is the role of a of a person who wants to be an end-of-life reform activist on behalf sure. of my fellow civilians. We have to call it what it is, even if it doesn't sound pretty. and. And the irony is that if a provider fails to disclose enough information so that I can actually make an informed treatment decision, right, as a proxy. Right? Because you cannot consent to what you're not informed about. And I've experienced that and it took me a year and a half to uncover that fact after my dad died. Mm. You know? That was eighteen months too long. And it caught sure. and it might have cost him his life. Um so, if if provider doesn't ask if we want to be informed, let alone doesn't inform, or provider makes some kind of assumption, or provider wimps out, they are abandoning us. Mm. And and I don't think they see it that way. It's a harsh thing to say and possibly to hear, but it's important, I think, for us as lay people interested in dying more gently, we have to examine all of these aspects, right? Right. So. To answer the big, bigger question you posed, how do we know what we don't know? Rather than go into one detail or another, let me talk about my lexicon, right? And I didn't set out, because I'm not an academic, right? I didn't set out to create an end-of-life lexicon. I set out to simply answer the question, why, why, why did we fail to die in peace when we said we want to die in peace? What went wrong? And the book covers five of what I have since writing it come to call obstacles. And since the book, I have assessed two more obstacles, and I realized that I've experienced them all, but I didn't recognize the, second, the last two at the time I lived them, or when I wrote the book, I've certainly experienced them since. And The Matrix of Dying Terms, who's the session that you experienced last month, Um, was devoted to one of those obstacles. So my answer is, first of all, we have to understand that systemically and culturally, there are a number of obstacles. I think I've counted about 10 or 11, but I only cover seven because they're the only ones that I can offer any guidance about. Some of them are kind of intractable and sort of beyond the scope of medicine, a medical involvement, engagement. We, we are going to encounter obstacles that are in our path and they are there sure as a speed bump is down the road, you know? And so what I've done is identify what the, them and assess them and offer some guidance for how to mitigate them and hopefully even overcome them. The thing is, this is pretty damn hard to do in the midst of a demise, unless that right. demise plays out over some years. But it's really, really hard to do if somebody crashes medically and, and you convene at the bedside in an ICU, right? Well, so they're wired yes, up and catheterized I, and all like that. It's a little late in the game. So, you know, here, here's another way to view it. So we do our advanced directives, and this is like ADs, right, advanced directives. It's ADs 2.0. AD's 1.0 is, well, fill them out, you know, have the conversations, fill them out, assign a proxy and make copies and put them in the, ba- in the trunk of every single family member's car. Put a copy in your luggage and your wife's luggage, your loved one's luggage, your boyfriend and girlfriend's luggage, so that if you go down on vacation halfway across the country, you still have the AD's available, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's, a, that's AD's 1.0. But AD 2.0 is when we take a breath And we start wondering, what happens if I need to use those ADs? Like, how do they actually play out in real life? And then you start posing what-if questions. And in order to answer them, you do what you do, at least, which is to read some books. And if people aren't readers, I don't know how they get the job done there are a lot a lot of good books out there now and i read 60 when i was writing mine and i've read at least 30 since, maybe more
2: mm-hmm. katie's is
3: a late entry you know she, she published what 2 years ago or something right and uh
2: maybe three something like that.
3: so you learn a lot um and and it's a lot of work i you know i can't i can't short circuit this and and you know so i don't know if people are working i'm retired now except for my end of life work um I don't know how people make the time to do this. It is a huge, big topic, among the hugest. And in order to to learn, you know, how to overcome these obstacles, you have to know what they are, and you have to sit and and ponder and take in all the screw-ups that have happened to way too many of us over generations' worth of time.
2: So can you name some of those impediments uh, so that people get a sense of what we're talking about here? Um
3: yeah. it's always a challenge to see if I can do them in order.
2: <laughs> oh, it doesn't matter work. whether it's in order.
3: <laughs> yeah, 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 but they sort, of ma- they sort of like ripples in a pond, you know. Uh-huh. So um, the first one is, you know, my mom used to ask, when is enough enough? And we used to sit around the table and look blankly at one another after she asked that because no one knows how to answer that question. And yeah. so I came up with an answer that served for me. And for me, it's the first obstacle, right? And I call it um, the inability to recognize prior medical engagement as heroic. As an example, my dad underwent a double bypass at age 65. His heart stopped. I watched him get paddled I, when I drove, you know, in a furor to the hospital across Denver at the time. So, you know, 19 years later, I'm writing the book, and I realized that, you know, if you can't answer the question, when is enough enough, one component of it, I think the major component is, that you don't know if you've done any of it yet. That's why you can't say it's enough. If, if you haven't eaten anything, you can't say, I have eaten enough. If you've eaten, but your mind is disconnected from your mouth, and you don't know that you've eaten, and somebody offers you food, maybe you'll keep shoveling it in, right? Mm-hmm. So that's a metaphor. Yeah for too much medicine at the end of life. So we have to examine our medical history and say, gee, have I acted in whatever way that, for me, tells me I have really climbed the wall, I've climbed the mountain, right? I have acted heroically, or if you're religiously inclined, I have acted so as to sanctify life and save the life. And if I've done that three or four or five times, maybe that's enough. Okay? So that's obstacle one and the solution for it. Um, If you don't know that enough is enough, and you move on, then another obstacle awaits you, and that's exposure to medical snafus. They can be misadventure, like making a decision to undergo a test that you probably shouldn't undergo because there was way too many risks, which is what happened with my dad. And he crashed under that test, and he wound up in a hospital bed, and then he contracted MRSA from a urinary catheter, and that's what did him in. So he had, he exposed himself and experienced two medical snafus. One was, was misadventure by having the test in the first place. It was a, a nuclear pacemaker test. And the second was he experienced medical error directly,
2: mm-hmm.
3: personally, and it was yes. fatal. Okay. Now, when we get in those environments, if we get in those environments... We are exposed in them, and uh, here's where my brain stops. Um,
2: well, that's oh, that's one of the that, that's one of the uh, um, things that get in our way. Yes.
3: Yeah. Of, right. So, yeah. But, you know Impediments. Anyway, I can't. Yeah. Impediments. Right. So, uh, oh, oh, I know what happens. So when we're there. And again, this is an abstract. This stuff happened to my family, and I had to debug it. I had to say, what happened to us? Really? What was it? I had to pull the strands apart. It took me a long time. Well, we, we experienced overrides to my folks' directives, mm-hmm. and they resulted in a fatality because my dad's directives were overridden by the doctor's prerogatives, which were never discussed with us in advance, right? It was, a, again, spur of the moment. And I did what I could at the time. You read it. I wrote it up. And it was a huge and painful lesson. Right? Um, so we don't know just, that. Just but- so
2: the listeners know, what, what I got out of that was um, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't perform a um, helpful surgery because he wouldn't suspend his DNR. And you didn't have information that um, intubation is a natural part of surgery. Well, not
3: only that—that—that—that that, that, that was the circumstance, and it was not. We didn't feel it was heroic, you know. They—we just wanted to drain the infection and see if maybe he right. could heal because it blew up his wrist like a tennis ball. It's and, uncomfortable. Um, it's
2: painful for one thing.
3: Say, say what?
2: That kind of thing. My mother had something similar. It's very painful. That kind of, of infection. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And, well, you know, he didn't want intubation. Well, guess what? Nobody asked why. Well, I failed, too. I didn't think to tell them why, because my mom was intubated for three weeks, only 15 months prior, in a really nasty, rotten, compassionless facility. And and he didn't want that to happen to him. And Mm -hmm. we didn't realize, you know, without going into the details, OR surgery was the only alternative the doc's deemed safe given his heart condition. And and he opted out. He was cognizant half the time. He was driving his train. I only had to proxy for him when he was when he slipped, you know, cognitively. Um, right.
2: Uh, yeah, we're going to take a break now, Bart, and we'll be back after the break. While we're having that break, listeners, you can you can go find me at my website, weatheringgrief.com, dot com, or the Good Grief Host page, and to find, find Bart, go to Axiom. Action.com. That's A-X-I-O-M-A-C-T-I-O-N dot com. We'll be back right after the break.
0: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. You want to have the highest quality of life possible and you want to live as healthy a life as possible so you can do everything you want to do. But There are all kinds of myths with regard to what's right, what's healthy, and what is best. To Debunk that misinformation by tuning into Shattering the Status Quo with Dr. Michael Quast. You should be able to make your own choices with your health and your life. And you should be well-informed to make those choices. Tune in every Wednesday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Health & Wellness Channel.
1: We are bombarded daily with information about beauty products and anti-aging treatments. Do you know how they have been tested? Are they truly going to make a change or just take the change out of your pocket? Tune in to Shelly's Show & Tell with host Shelly Hancock. We'll bring you the top-rated skincare products and treatments tested by Real Transformation Skin Care Centers. We'll motivate you to make the best changes. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Real Life Solutions,
0: Voice America Health & Wellness.
2: Welcome back. My guest today is Bart Windrum, who works to better inform the public about hospital deaths, how to navigate that very mysterious system, and um, before the break, Bart, we were talking about um, the the questions that don't get asked and and answered, and how deeply that affects this process. For instance, you were talking about your dad; um, nobody asking why he was so firm about his um, DNR being strictly enforced and the the reason being that um, your mom had been through three weeks of that and he didn't want to go through that. Um, Let's pick that up because um, I felt when I was reading the book like you were perhaps saying he would have been more flexible with some kind of guarantee that it wouldn't be endless.
3: Yes, and that 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 the 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 possibility of that sort of flexibility was never introduced to us. I didn't know the option existed until eighteen months after he, his death, as I was writing and researching the book. And guess what? It has a name. Mm. That's how mainstream it was. The name is called a time-based trial, right? And that was never presented you... to us.
2: You know, I've never heard that term, and Maybe I've been—I've been in. I don't know. I but I've been in medical environments endlessly. I work with cancer, and I, I was so. I mean, I I I guess I kind of have been exposed to the idea of it, but I think that's such a helpful set of words. There's no reason that lay people couldn't understand what that means. It's not that scientific.
3: You're right, but you know, there's a more important aspect, and this is, you know, if you really want to sort of understand the system that, that is out there today, the bottom line is that the doctor's prerogatives overrode, uh, patient directives. And there are all kinds of reasons, you know, doctors denying death, they don't want to, you know, I have to ask the question, look, I'm just a guy on the street, you know? And so, if, if I'm struggling to live, I'm my dad, right? I've got MRSA coursing through me, it's none of my business, right? Just happened. And, I would like to get out of there and go home. I've got this raging infection coursing through my body. I just want to see if I can drain it and maybe recover if I'm lucky. But I've got one-third of my heart left due to two prior heart attacks. I've got that comorbidities, high blood pressure, diabetes, yada, yada, yada. So I'm willing to die if it doesn't go well. I don't want to be resuscitated because we know it doesn't work as shown on TV. But the docs refuse to let somebody die on the table for a number of reasons. It bugs them, they feel like a failure, it goes against them their sense of themselves and their role, like who are they serving themselves or us? It might get they might get a, a statistical ding, which is a very bad systemic outcome and should be changed, right? And I mean, we, it, that's why I, one of the reasons I wrote the article that I wrote about, which time to account for medical error on top 10 causes of death charts, there's all kinds of record keeping that is inaccurate and unfairly presents data to the public and lies to everyone, providers and the public alike, and, and promulgates a system of unfairly dinging providers. They shouldn't get unfairly dinged. If my dad dies on the table because he didn't want to be resuscitated, that's his thing. No provider should get a, a you know, should get a, a, a nick in their record because of that. So there's a whole lot behind the thing. But the, the bottom line in terms of obstacles, and I, I want to keep focused on this, how do you mitigate this obstacle? You, first of all, we've identified it right now. We've did, done a little bit of assessment about it. You have to know that it's there. And how you mitigate it in real time is be prepared to have a conversation and be prepared to ask questions before they're hypotheticals. You, ha- you have to be a comfortable question asker. And you have yes. to be comfortable asking a lot of hypothetical questions. So the obstacle is that uh, overrides to our directives, right?
2: Yes. You know, I'm thinking about a, a guest. Uh, I, I think it's a little bit of a of an unusual environment here in the Bay Area. There are actually a lot of people working on what we're talking about. And one guest I had was uh, Jessica Nudig-Zitter. She's, been, she's writing a book right now. She's written a lot for the New York Times. She works in an ER situation at Highland right near here. It's a, a public hospital. And she's training other doctors in that vi- environment to recognize when the family coming into their ER is coming in because someone's life is ending or is coming in because something needs to be medically addressed. She's Uh trying to train them to differentiate, which involves training them to have that conversation with people
3: Uh so that Uh
2: they are informed that actually what's happening is that their loved one is dying. Uh, so that they can make an appropriate choice about it and yes, it's i was so piece.
3: yeah ahead, and sorry.
2: yeah and so when i interviewed her uh it was so illuminating to me um you know in the same ballpark of what we're talking about that really doctors have not been trained to say you know, we we understand why you came in because there are all these phenomenons happening, and that is an indicator that your loved one is dying. And so the family's saying, you know, do this and do that. And, and of course, the doctors do it because they're afraid of malpractice, et cetera, et cetera. Um, well, and, I mean, if you know, yeah, uh, if, yeah and so... Um, that's, a, you know, that's another example of these kind of impediments to having real conversations about is this a dying moment or is you it see, an and, intervention and, moment?
3: See, and this is an opportunity for us because the reason doctors are afraid of malpractice suits is the overall death-denying culture, and we're all part of it, right? So in order to be prepared for dying, Right? Just take those several words. Be prepared for dying. Man, unpack those four words. Mm -hmm. You know, that doesn't mean, oh, okay, I'm strong. I can take bad news when it's delivered to me. It means doing the kind of work that you and I are doing on the phone right now and the listeners are doing by listening to us 20 years before it's going to happen to us. Yes. Right. And, That's what's and beginning to emerge uh, culturally now.
2: Absolutely. And the other thing I'm so aware of is that, um, for instance, if we take cancer, when my wife was going through it, uh, she was supposed to die in six months. And because of her stubbornness, but also because of improved medical care, you know, more treatments available, she lived eight and a half these prolonged and and I wouldn't trade that of course but uh-huh. how do we then determine when it is a dying time it's a complicated thing for her she happened to have a condition secondary that was not hopeful you know it was hopeless And so that triggered us and we had been preparing and we had been talking about it. But, you know, I'm looking at your matrix of dying terms. Well, there's abrupt dying. Okay. That's, we don't have to talk about that in a, in a sense, because it's just you get hit by a car and that's that. And there's, and there's, uh, then everything else is kind of nuanced, isn't it? is it well, actually dying sometimes it's clear and sometimes we make a judgment call about it yes
3: yes and uh, and from you know i think i think those of us who do this work are, are are either active in it or you know are part of communities that watch people like you and me do the work and are therefore privy to the conversations that we have on forums and our writings and pre- presentations and like that. Yes. I think there's pretty much consensus in medicine and out that it's really a question of benefit versus risk and quality of life indicators, uh, quality of life, uh, you know, in actual fact, what constitutes the life that each of us want to be living and, and are we living that life? And if we are in fact terminal, um, rather than just beat up and root to becoming terminal, then we get to choose whether we want to continue a treatment path to try to fix whatever is whatever it is, and sort of stair step down, or if we want to opt out of that. Because usually the efforts to fix it, by and large, apparently from what I've read, uh, result in greater burdens on our remaining life than if we were to just. Let go of those those things and not engage in that kind of medical intervention anymore, and and live out our days, you know, without you know without you know spending our time and vital energy, you know, on that pathway, um, you know, in a way, here's a metaphor. I haven't thought of this for many years, but it might even be in the book. I don't know, you know, because every now and then people talk about you know like cars as a metaphor or something. You talk about an off ramp on the freeway. You know, freeway being a metaphor for full bore, full tilt medicine all the way and, you know, become a, a, you know, in a persistent vegetative state at its, at its logical conclusion or illogical conclusion. But, you know, and somewhere along the line I said, you know, if you want to take the off ramp and en route to that sort of mythical, bucolic, water waterside abode, you know, the cottage on the lake, you know, sort of where we picture dying, right? You want to be, you know, you want to hear the birds singing, you want to see the nice sun and the and the blue sky like that. Um, you have to have enough fuel in your tank to get there. By definition, mm. if you run out of fuel on the off ramp, you're going to die on the off ramp with your vehicle falling to pieces around you, right? By definition, your your vehicle has to get you to your destination, and so we have to be willing to die, as I said at the time, with a little fuel in our tank, because we ain't going to get to our destination on our last drop of fuel. That, that's too happy, right? Life right. Life isn't that efficient. And so what the metaphor means is we have to be willing to risk going out with just a little more vitality than maybe we needed, because... We can't run out of vitality and route to that destination, or by definition, we won't reach it. So um, nobody wants to give up a day sooner than necessary, but you know what? That is what's necessary, or we risk dying in places and under circumstances that we say that we don't
2: want. I'm thinking about, I think we're both... Baby boomers in that general category of... uh And, you know, we were questioners. Most of us uh, questioned a lot <laughs> of everything. So now we're at the point in our lives, our parents are dying. For me, it happened much earlier because of my wife's death. But we are now at the point where we're being exposed to death and we're contemplating how do we want to do it, aren't we? I mean, that's part of what our conversation is about today. How do you and I want to navigate. And, and of course, that's back to cars, isn't it? <laughs> Which freeway well, are we even on?
3: <laughs> well, you um, know, I will tell you that I don't know the answer to that question for myself. I mean, I know it in broad brushstrokes. Um, I can't say I'm looking forward to it. The idea of proxying again for a dying family member scares me to my toes. Uh, I will certainly be much better at it the next time, but I ain't looking forward to it. It requires so much of us in so many ways.
2: And it's it's imperfectible. Beyond these things, we can um, work to change. Um, I consider death fairly messy because it can't be predicted. You know, there's so many different directions that it goes. Um, Mm -hmm. But I do agree with you that we can... Uh, we can't be prepared, but we can prepare for sure.
3: Um, yes. Yes, we can. And uh, for instance, I, I think we touched on three of the seven obstacles that I've identified plus the other three or four that that I mentioned because I need to be thorough, but I can't do anything about, for instance, you know, financial, <laughs> well, financial some, matters, but- family dynamics, you know, I, I yeah. can't do anything about those. But, you know... We prepare by engaging in in this sort of work and if, if I may, because I, I, I'm looking at the clock, I know we have just a few yeah, minutes left. we have left. just
2: a couple of minutes left so um, I I want to direct people um, and then you can have a last word uh, just to your book especially in terms of patient ethical alternative care elective which is uh, I think a pretty good um, invitation to another way of coming at our own ends and how we get that peaceful end. So I wanted to make sure we mentioned that. But what were you going to say?
3: Well, um, the option to die in peace, which is what that acronym uh, opens up to, Patient Ethical Alternative Care Elective, it's it's Mm -hmm. actually the name of a proposal I made to the state of Colorado, which was concurrent with writing the book. And uh, they threw open a, a committee process for a whole year, to the state and thirty one entities uh, submitted proposals, most of them were about health care access, right you know paying mm-hmm. so people could get coverage. Uh, mine was the only one of thirty one to mention death or dying, and the committee, about thirty members or so, actually never took it up over the entire year it was It was quite disappointing and for anyone in California, you can read my proposal it 's online um, it contained everything to the letter, plus more that Dr. Ira Byock set forth in his February 2015 op-ed in the LA Times. I said all that stuff as a layperson back in 2007 in Colorado, but I used that phrase the option to die in peace as the as the the title of the last section of my book. So,
2: so I'm hoping and, that we have now teased people into going and getting your book and, and reading more thoroughly about that, but we've come to the end of our time. There's so much in it, there's no way we, we could have covered everything for sure, but I really want to thank you for being with me today, Bart.
3: And thank you for having me. It's really been a delight to talk with you. It was great to meet you in LA. And
2: It was. And I hope you had it as was. great a time
3: there as I did.
2: Yes, definitely. And listeners, I, I really think uh, Bart's, Bart Windrum's book, Notes from the Waiting Room, is a great resource to uh, just unravel some of these questions before you face them. And it's available on Amazon. And there's also a link at Bart's website, axiomaction.com. Next week, I'm going to welcome Stephanie Johnson. She's written a play about her cancer treatment, uh, uh, Cancer, Yoga, and Me, and we'll be discussing that. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation.
1: Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief.